Thank you so much. You know, I was just thinking as uh, Fred was closing in prayer and, and asking the Lord to just use that building that he has been providing for us um, to accomplish his purposes that we always prayed from day one that God would use it to bring people to Christ and help people grow in Christ, right? Evangelizing and equipping is our twofold purpose as a church. And um, if you remember, uh, when we just had that building framed up, we, we had a Sunday where everybody got a Sharpie and you got to go in there and write on the drywall and other places on some of the steel and just maybe write a Bible verse or even the names of people uh, that you were praying for in this community that would come to Christ through that building, you know, being able to have access to that facility. And uh, I just found out this week, uh, we've already had one um, conversion, if you will, as a result of that bu building. Okay, obviously, we know it's not the building, it's God. But uh, one of the students is going to share their testimony uh, at the baptism service this Sunday that uh, after listening to a message that Billy preached over there, uh, he wanted to talk to Billy, and there was no nowhere else to, to talk but the guy's bathroom. And so he and Billy went into the, the, the guy's bath and the men's bathroom over there and had a life-changing conversation, and that young man went home and prayed to receive Christ. And so I don't know if anybody wrote anything in the bathrooms, but I guess I wasn't thinking about that bathroom where the ministry would take place, but you never know, right? So what a cool story how the Lord has just, uh, you know, provided a space, right, to do ministry is really what it is. And so we're excited to see uh, what the Lord's going to continue to do over there. Well, in light of Sonny and Jan's announcement, I think we just need to close in prayer and say, follow their example, right? We don't have to even look at the closing chapter of Song of Solomon, right? If you can make it 56 years, is that what you said? 56 years, that is awesome. So praise God. What an evidence of, of, of his grace in, in your guys' lives. And so uh, this, this message will be in honor of you guys today. Obviously in honor of God, right? <laughs> in honor of God, but in honor of uh, Sonny and Jan, um, because you are really models uh, of what we're going to look at uh, tonight. And the title of tonight's message, this concluding passage uh, for uh, our series in the Song of Solomon, is called Love for a Lifetime love for a lifetime or love that lasts a lifetime and we're going to look at uh, song of solomon uh, chapter 8 verses 5 through 14 let me just read this text as we begin uh, song of songs chapter 8 verse 5 who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved beneath the apple tree i awakened you there your mother was in labor with you there she was in labor and gave you birth Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy is as severe as Sheol, its flashes are flashes of fire, its very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will waters or nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. I was a wall. My breasts were like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamam. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit, for every... Uh, for my very own vineyard is at my disposal. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and 200 are for those who take care of its fruit. 
O you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening by your vo for your voice. Let me hear it. Hurry, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Father, we just ask you to be gracious to us tonight. Lord, as we wrap up this uh, fascinating uh, book, Lord, that your spirit would move uh, in our midst tonight, Lord, illuminating our minds to understand the meaning of this text and helping us to make application of it, Lord, to our lives and our marriages, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you don't have to look any further than the daily news or the, the nightly news to see that the God-ordained institution of marriage has fallen on hard times. Um, fewer and fewer people, it seems today, are experiencing the beauty and the intimacy and the exclusivity and permanency of a marriage relationship the way God intended it to be. Uh, the, 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 the norm today are uh, adulterous affairs, uh, divorce, same-sex marriages, friends with benefits, prenuptial agreements. Um, these are all commonplace, right, in, in our contemporary culture. Let me just give you a few examples, just, just again, from popping up on msn.com or listening to the nightly news uh, at home on the TV. Uh, these are just some things that, that I've come across just in the last couple weeks, not even looking. Right? They just come, they come looking for you. You don't have to go look for these things. Um, there was an interview uh, promoting an upcoming movie called The Other Woman, uh, and the actress, one of the actresses in this, uh, who's going to be acting in this movie, who made this movie, said this, quote, in the interview, everyone will be cheated on. I don't know how to fix the problem. And obviously the movie's about getting cheated on, the other woman, right? Um, the divorce rate, as you know, is over 50%, which means statistically if you get married, you got a 50-50 chance of that thing working, right? Um, more and more states in our country seem to be falling and approving and or upholding same-sex marriages. It will be only a matter of time before our entire country adopts that as the, as the norm. Uh, you, you probably heard about the Montana woman who is up for life sentence for pushing her husband off a cliff in Glacier, Glacier National Park after being married for only eight days. I don't think that's God's ideal for marriage. Um, even though some of you might feel like pushing your spouse off a cliff every once in a while, right? That's not what God intended. I just heard this week... Uh, that lawmakers in Mexico City are now proposing renewable two-year marriage contracts. Yeah, I mean, it is laughable if it wasn't so sad. And this, this is their thinking, that it's, it allows couples to decide up front how long they want to be married and also to avoid the torturous process of divorce. And again, I just think this is the latest example of how marriage is no longer considered an exclusive, lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Marriage is, is, is no longer till death do us part, but until things don't work out or until someone better comes along. And this is a blatant violation of God's design for marriage. Uh, marriage was always intended by God to be a permanent, lifelong vow or promise uh, to live with one another in sickness and in health, for richer or poor, right? Um, not a temporary uh, relationship. Uh, just a couple passages about 
divorce. Uh, passages I'm sure you're familiar with. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2 verse uh, 13. The, the, the people of Israel are wondering why God is, is angry at them and not, not uh, blessing them and not receiving their offerings. They said, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you've dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but not one has done so who is a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking godly offspring? Take heed then to the spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously with one another. In other words, that's how he would define divorce. It's, a, it's treacherous. Uh, it's not the way he intended for us to treat our spouses. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, more familiar probably passage, Matthew 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and she be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man, what? separate they said well why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away he said because of your hardness of heart Moses permitted you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it has not been this way and I say to you whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery and then Romans chapter 7 Romans chapter 7 Paul uses marriage as an example of our union with Christ uh, he says for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living but if her husband dies she's released from the law concerning the husband so that if while her husband is living she's joined to another man she shall be called an adulteress but if her husband dies she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress though she is joined to another man again the emphasis here is till what death do you part that's the that's the uh, the spirit of the scriptures. That's the intent of of the Lord. Now, verse it's verses like these, and, and in light of our culture, that whenever I do a wedding ceremony, I do something that is I think unorthodox, and I know it makes people very uncomfortable at wedding ceremonies. Is I talk about divorce. They're like, well, what are you talking about divorce? on a person's wedding day. <laughs> it seems ridiculous. I mean, you, come on, what a downer on the wedding day. You're just supposed to be a positive, happy, joyful, you know, and then you have to be the, 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 the it's not the Debbie downer, what is it, the pastor downer. You, you show up and you reign on the, on the wedding by, by bringing up the word divorce. Well, if, if the statistics are true, this couple standing in front of me has a 50-50 chance of making it, Right? And so I want to make it very clear to them, and I want to make it very clear to everyone who's there, that this is what they're about to do is extremely serious. And so this is what I say. This is, a, this is an excerpt from my wedding ceremony. 
I say this, many people today treat marriage as if it's just a casual agreement between two people to live together for as long as they both feel like it. But according to God's word, marriage is a solemn vow, a formal promise that involves very serious responsibilities for those who keep it and very serious consequences for those who break it. One of the characteristics of sinful people is that oftentimes we're not faithful to fulfill the promises that we make. We break our promises. That's why I believe a public ceremony like this is so important. You're not just privately saying your vows in some back room or signing a piece of paper in someone's office. If you're, about, you're about to make a public promise in front of your family, your friends, a pastor, and ultimately in front of God. By inviting us to your wedding tonight, you have made yourself accountable to keep your promise to love each other no matter what. And if you don't take your vows seriously, your family will. And if they don't, hopefully your friends will. And if they don't, I will. And if I don't, God definitely will. God is a supreme witness of this ceremony. It's like you are standing right in front of his throne in heaven, and he is a faithful God who keeps his promises to you and says in his word that it is better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. So I say that before they say their vows. And I got what I consider to be a great compliment one time. After I did a wedding ceremony, somebody came up to me and said, man, they are really married. <laughs> And I think that was an expression of, you know what, you were messing. I mean, they, 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 this, they took, this is serious stuff. And they, they, really, they really got married. And, uh, but again, how sad is that, that, that you would feel like there was something different going on at a wedding here at Lakeside Bible Church, right? I mean, we should be taught, this is, this is uh, unfortunately, that this casual, you know, Let's just waltz down the aisle and have a party afterwards, you know, as if it's, if it's no big deal. Uh, this is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life, right, apart from coming to Christ. And so I want to make sure it has the, the proper honor and magnitude. Um, Tommy Nelson said this, God was present at your wedding ceremony, and he continues to be an ongoing witness to your vows every day of your married life. And so not only do we need to be faithful to the promise we made to our spouse, we need to be faithful to that. I think we should always be striving to protect our spouse from any temptation to be unfaithful to the promise they made to us. And we said last week, the secret to establishing and maintaining that a lifelong romance is to, is to never stop doing two things. Remember, what are they? Never stop praising your spouse and never stop what? Pursuing your spouse. And trust me, if you don't praise and pursue your spouse, someone else will. Someone else will. And, or you'll start praising and pursuing someone else. And you think about a common scenario uh, for, for many married couples today. Um, the last thing a husband sees when he leaves the house is his wife in her bathrobe with messed up hair and bad breath and maybe nagging him on the way out the door about all the things he needs to do when he gets home, Right? And the first thing he sees when he gets to the office is a nicely dressed secretary who looks and smells good and shows him honor and respect. How do you think that's going to go? I mean, that's reality, isn't it? And the last thing a wife hears when her husband leaves is an irritable, insensitive, non-communicative guy. And as she goes about her daily duties, she may be greeted with a compliment by some happy guy at the, at the, at the checkout at the grocery store who shows an interest in her and seems sensitive to her personal emotional needs. I mean, where do you think that scenario is going to lead, right? I mean, so, by the way, that's one reason why I think in the wisdom of God, I'm just going to step on a land, I'm just throwing a grenade out here. That's one of the reasons why I think God intended men to be in the workplace, right? 
and, and, and this, the, what, what's happened along with so many women going into the workforce, along with that, adultery has just increased, right? Why? Because women are in a place, right, where God never necessarily intended them to be. Now, granted, there's women who are working in here. I, I, I get that. I don't, I'm not saying you're in sin because you're working outside the home because I don't think the Bible says that. Um, but, I, but I do think that there is, uh, you, you have to be on extra special guard. How's that? That's my point, right? You have to be very careful because it is, I think, an unnatural environment, right, for, for um, a man to be working with closely with someone else who's not his wife. And that ha- happens all the time. Um, and I think in many ways God created the home as a place of safety and protection, right, uh, for, for a woman. And so, um, again, granted, that's not uh, how God's providence has worked in every woman's life, right? Some of you are in the workforce by necessity and you're being a very faithful uh, employer or employee and uh, and God is honoring you and blessing you in that so please understand my my heart in that but I do think we have to be wise about what's going on out in the work world today and, and why it's happening um, so our goal should be to stay so focused on and committed to our spouse that we have no time to think about uh, praising or pursuing anyone else. I heard a guy one time say, he said, man, I don't even know where I'd fit an affair in my schedule. Because uh, he, you know, he was so busy uh, loving on his wife and serving his family and, and ra- raising the kids and, and serving the Lord in, in ministry. And, and it was like, where I couldn't, I, I, don't, I couldn't fit it in. <laughs> and uh, I think that's, there's something healthy about that, right? Um, that you're so focused on, listen, if, if I think one of the great ways to affair-proof your marriage, if you want to say that, is, is be so committed to cultivating your own marriage, right? You don't have time or the energy or, you know, to, to be looking anywhere else and to be drawn away anywhere else. Well, tonight, as I said, we're going to wrap up our study here of this great song, the greatest love song ever written. And we have the privilege of seeing how this exemplary couple had a loyal, lifelong commitment to each other. And they really model for us the kind of love that enables a man and a woman to remain faithful to each other until the day they die. And uh, I think this this final section of the book puts everything in perspective. Uh, We said at the beginning of our study that in, in, in light of the significance of God's gift of marriage, along with the sexual intimacy that goes along with that, that he intended us to enjoy within the bounds of marriage, uh, it, it makes sense that he would dedicate an entire book of the Bible to address this sacred subject. And so Song of Songs is, a, is really God's endorsement, his stamp of approval uh, of physical intimacy between a husband and wife uh, in, in marriage. And it shows that sex in marriage is not dirty or something to be ashamed of or, or embarrassed about. The physical attraction of a, of a man and a woman for, for each other and the righteous fulfillment of those sensual desires in a marriage relationship is God-ordained and it's God-glorifying. However, while, we, while, while it may appear, right, as we've gone through this book, that this book is all about the physical intimacy, the physical relationship uh, of a marriage, right, it's really not about that. And, and we might walk away going, well, that's okay, that's awkward. I'm glad we're, we're done with that, right? If, you, if that's the way you're feeling, you missed the whole point of the book because it's really not so much about the physical intimacy within marriage. It's really about the, the remarkable marriage relationship 
and the natural role that physical intimacy plays as a byproduct. In other words, this couple's mutual attraction was not purely hormonal, but it was primarily relational. So for all the sexual activity that we've seen in this book, we need to see the love behind the the intimacy. What are we talking about? We didn't say a celebration of sex. We said a celebration of what? True love. You you need to be friends before you can be lovers, right? And and we we learned that in chapter 5, verse 16, where the, the girl, the Shulamite, said, this is my beloved and this is my what? Friend friend and again guys this is a good reminder for us if our wives don't perceive us don't consider us their friend i.e. their best friend right um, things aren't going to go very well (laughs) Uh, in any aspect of your marriage right it starts with friendship it starts with relationship Uh, I wanted just to read a little bit from uh, C.J. Mahaney's book Sex, Romance and the Glory of God What Every Christian Husband Needs to Know and uh, I think he very wisely um, has leveraged the power of sex in a man's mind uh, to compel men to examine all the biblical truths that that relate to that and undergird it. In other words, hey, I want to get a guy to read a book. I'm going to put the word sex on it. He's going to pick it up and go, oh, okay, I'm going to you know, read this. This is going to be great. Well, guess what? You're like, where's the chapter? I can't find it. And it's all these chapters about how to love your wife and serve your wife and how to live with her in an understanding way, how to adore her, how to romance her with language, you know, and, 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 and carefully crafted words. And, and, and it's really all about the love behind the physical intimacy. Uh, and so just listen to some of the things he says, because he, he does a really good job towards the end here, wrapping up or summarizing uh, or making the point that, guys, it's not about the sex, it's about the love. He says this, it's it's remarkable how Solomon's language, while obvious in its intent, is never biologically specific in a way that could be considered vulgar or clinical. As a result, while we can clearly say, say that the song features some pretty provocative stuff and that sexual intercourse is definitely included in the subject matter, we cannot point to a specific phrase and say, yes, look, right here in this verse, the language clearly indicates that they're engaged uh, in this activity. But the fact is, uh, it's self full of meeting. That fact is itself full of meaning. Although sexual intercourse is certainly an ultimate expression of a married couple's erotic encounter, it is not the outstanding central feature of this book. What is dominant in the song is not any particular physical act. The book is about is not about sexual intercourse. Rather, it is about the remarkable nature of the couple's overall relationship. Um, very well said. And so he says here, um, he says in this chapter, talking about this final chapter that we're going to look at, he says uh, it's, it's important to clarify and underscore the energizing force of biblically great sex, that is the beauty, power, and goodness of covenant love. All the sex in Solomon's song takes place in the context of this couple's loving, committed relationship. Covenant love is the main theme of the song, without which the book itself cannot be rightly understood. He says, so Solomon takes the time at the end of this bold celebration of sexuality to remind us of the foundation of loving marital commitment that must underlie all such intimacy. 
And then he uses an example, which I think is really good. He said, when a blazing fire of logs captures our attention, we become distracted by the dramatic flames. In other words, we've been seeing some dramatic flames as we've been studying through the, the, the Song of Songs. He said, the wood itself, which is in fact the essential thing, can be easily forgotten. It is only when the fire dies down that we focus again on the source, now a rich, radiant, golden mass carrying intense heat. And so... It's as if in this last chapter, not that the flames die down, but he gives us a chance, Solomon here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us a chance to see really the source of that intense passion. Let's take our eyes off the flames, right? And let's look at the source, the fuel, really. What's fueling all this sensuality that we see in this book? What's fueling that? Um. The statement could be made this way. Sexual enjoyment is the result of relational commitment. Okay? That's important. In other words, uh, romance comes and goes. I don't know about you. Um, Kelly and I don't wake up every morning thinking romantic thoughts of each other. That's just not reality, right? Uh, so that comes and goes. Um, and, and there will come a day, right, when the sexual passion will naturally slow down and eventually pass away but the commitment behind it will remain, amen? And that's the, that's the thing to keep in mind. So the outline here, we're looking at uh, the Song of Songs. You might have grabbed another outline and you came in or you have it in front of you. Uh, we've seen the courtship of this couple. We've seen the consummation of this couple. We've seen the conflict, right, between the couple. And now we're going to see the commitment of this couple. We're going to see the sealing of their love. And up until this point in the song, the speeches of the starring characters have been distinct. They've been separate. Uh, they've been fairly easy to uh, distinguish and identify. Okay, there's the beloved. Uh, there's the darling. There's the there's Solomon. There's the Shulamite. There's the daughters of Jerusalem, right? Um, the background singers. But now, as the book reaches its climax, uh, we're going to see the pattern kind of breaks down and the dialogue moves back and forth very quickly from one character to the other, kind of leaving us with with this impression of togetherness, that there's a oneness of identity, that, that this couple has become one flesh so that they're really indistinguishable or inseparable from each other. Um, you know how it is, right? Even couples, as they age together, they, they start looking like each other, right? That's a joke, right? We, they start looking like each other, and, and that's kind of what we see. And, and it's almost as if, I guess, the picture here you can get in your mind, it's like at the end of the play or the musical, when all the characters come out from behind the curtain, right, to take their final bow, and through maybe a characteristic action or a, a few select words, uh, you remember their part, the part that they played, right? Uh, and so we're going to see uh, the companions, uh, the, 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 the daughters of Jerusalem, they come out. The, the brothers, right? We talked about the brothers early on who were uh, um, making her work in the vineyard to the point where she couldn't take good care of herself. She had no time for herself, right? So the brothers reappear here. The mother, who's mentioned, been mentioned a couple of times, of course, Solomon and the Shulamite. And what I want you to see as we just walk through here is just really the traits of true love, okay? The, the traits of true love. What, what, is it, what does it take to, for a love to last a lifetime, okay? What, what, what is that love like? What, what kind of love lasts a lifetime? That's that, whatever that kind of love is, right, that's, that must be an awesome love. That must be a powerful love that, that, that lasts a lifetime, Um. 
And we're going to see that that's not anything that we can generate in ourselves. That kind of love that lasts a lifetime is not humanly possible. Did you get that? It is not humanly possible. It is a supernatural kind of love. And so let's just walk through there. I don't even have an outline this, this evening. I'm just going to walk that, through these verses um, and, and show you what, what they mean. Here in verse 5, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And so remember, we left them last time uh, with his left hand under her head and his right hand embracing her, and the curtains closed, right, as they always do, uh, just at the right time uh, in, the, in the book of Song of Songs. And uh, so they had, had, she had invited him away for the weekend getaway, right? A kind of getaway to the country. I want to go back to my hometown and, uh, and, and, and just get away. And so they were coming back from another erotic encounter. And it says that she's coming here. Who's coming up from the wilderness? They're coming back from their little mini vacation, if you will. And, and she's leaning on her beloved. And this is the daughters of Jerusalem, again, watching this relationship blossom and grow and mature and uh and so again she's leaning on him showing the closeness the 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 comfortableness the the tender affection the security the familiarity uh that's created right uh by the joys of physical intimacy i don't know if you've ever noticed uh the difference between a couple when they 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 kind of you know are engaged and they get married and then they go off on their honeymoon and they come back from their honeymoon there's something a little different about them you ever notice that Something a little different about them. Well, what is it? Well, there's something that happens in their relationship where, where, where they're more intimate with one another because of what they've enjoyed together. And, and so that's kind of what's going on here. And then notice it says, Beneath the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave you birth. And so I think it may be that what, uh, what uh, the, the, um, Solomon here uh, uh, is, is saying, he, he's just reminding her of how they met um, that hey remember you were there and I, I woke you up under the tree and and uh, kind of this is your mother's uh, you're back in your hometown um, again I think there's a sense of destiny here um, that your mother bore you for me um, God saw uh, us together before the foundation of the earth right um, that he sovereignly brought us together for a purpose, for his glory, and for our good. No one could be more right for me than you. Um, I think this is this is helpful because every once in a while, uh, couples will maybe go through a difficult time, and uh, they'll start thinking wacky thoughts like, I married the wrong person. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and, and be honest, but I, I would guess that in a lot of your marriage, at some point in your marriage, the thought crossed your mind, right? When she was chasing you around the kitchen with the knife, right? I married the wrong person. No, just kidding. Um, the, the point, right? I mean, seriously, when, when you kind of get sideways and you have conflict and it's rough in marriage and you're like, that's a natural thought. It's, oh man, I knew I shouldn't have married this person, right? Or man, I, I just married the wrong person. And, and so, Listen, the point is this, regardless of how you got together, even if you're unequally yoked, guess what? You married the right person now. <laughs> Why? How do we know that? Because you're married, right? That's the person that God wanted you to marry. Now, you may have violated his directive will. Don't marry an unbeliever. You're unequally yoked. You, you disobeyed his directive will, but guess, guess what? You're still within his decretive will. It's all part of his plan, Right? 
So God providentially engineered all the circumstances and situations that caused you to meet, to fall in love, and God uniquely prepared you for each other. Um, again, the sense here is that God has been and continues to be in control of every aspect of a relationship, and that God gave you the spouse he gave you to bring about the changes and growth in your life that he wanted for you. And God knows better, God knows you better than you know yourself, right? Uh, he knows what you need better than you do. And so, again, I, I, I'm just bringing out their, uh, just kind of, they're going back to the beginning of the relationship and saying, hey, you know, I, I know that we were ordained for one another. Um, and so, again, I just want to encourage you, when the thought comes up, I married the wrong person, the fact that you're married to him means you didn't, <laughs> okay? Because you are married and, and make the most of it and know that somehow God's in it and he's going to use that marriage, right? And, and your spouse to make you more like Jesus. And that's ultimately what matters most. Now, moving on to verses 6 and 7, uh, these are two of probably the most well-known verses about love uh, in, in the Bible. They would probably be considered uh, the 1 Corinthians 13 of the Old Testament. You familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? Well, this would be the love text, the love section of the Old Testament. And, and really, these verses I'm sure you've seen on wedding uh, invitations and, and wedding programs. Maybe you use these verses, right, um, in, in your wedding. Um, very appropriate verses. Um, we're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. Love is what? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is, right, all these things, all these attributes of love. And, and, and really, uh, Paul describes the essence of true love, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. Well, here, Solomon describes the essence of true love. And, and, and we're going to see that there's a finality, a permanency about true love. I think that's the emphasis here, uh, really the strength. Is, what, what's emphasized here is the strength and the resiliency and the permanency of, of true love. Notice verse 6, put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. So here's the Shulamite asking Solomon um, to make her his most valued possession. I mean, what, what wife doesn't want to know that she's her husband's most prized possession, right? And so that's what she's appealing to him for, and, and, and she's talking about put, putting her like a seal over his heart, like a seal on his arm. And the idea here is that the seal was an engraved stone or, a, or, or, or some kind of metal seal, which in those days was a mark of ownership. It was kind of like the signature, and they would put a, a stamp or a, a seal on something. If it belonged to you, uh, they would know, oh, that's so-and-so's thing, whatever it was. Um, and so she's asking him to, to show his possession of her, uh, it, it basically, that, uh, that 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 he promised, uh, you know, to 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 uh, love her for the rest of his life. So, uh, whether this could be a, on a signet ring, uh, it could be a bracelet, even maybe a pendant around the neck that with some kind of pendant that was over the heart that was very symbolic. But uh, I think in our day, uh, how do we see this uh, put into practice in our day? Very practically, when a, when a husband and wife get married, how do they put a seal over their heart like a seal on their arm? Yeah, this thing right here that I'm having a harder time getting off these days because I think the gold is shrinking. That's what's happening. Right, Jeff, is that possible? The gold can shrink? My, my finger, I think more my finger's expanding. I'm not sure which one of it is. But, uh, 
but, but what, what is this wedding ring, right? It's a, it's a reminder of the promise, right, that you made uh, to your spouse, okay? This is a promise. This is a reminder of the promise that I made to Kelly to love her for the rest of our lives. And uh, really giving each other a ring, right? Hey, I'm going to give you a ring, and she gave me this ring, and I gave her a ring, and this was our way of kind of marking one another as exclusively belonging to each other, right? Um, when you see somebody with a wedding ring, it basically means I'm taken, okay? I'm off the market, all right? You keep looking somewhere else because I'm not interested. I'm already taken, and, uh, and, and that's kind of the, it identifies you as being married. And so that's why I think you should always uh, very proudly and gladly wear your wedding ring. If you're married, wear your wedding ring. Now, Grant, I know some of you maybe guys do some work that would be dangerous to have your wedding ring. I've heard of guys that have gotten their finger actually ripped off their body because they had their wedding ring caught on something at work, you know, so maybe you put your ring away at work while you're during work hours, but man, put it on as soon as possible, right? Why? Because it's a way to really honor God and honor your spouse, right? Um, So again, it's an outward sign of an inward commitment. Um, He, he, she didn't want any uh, other woman, right, to be uh, drawn to him, and so she wanted them to see, oh, he's got, he's got that signet, he's got that seal, right? Oh, okay, um, he's he's taken, right? Um, and he didn't want her husband looking at any other uh, any other woman either. So, uh, again, note, notice what he says here. He says, "For love is as strong as death." Can you think of anything stronger than death? In other words, death is so powerful that it's going to take all of us down someday, unless Jesus comes back, right? There's nothing we can do about it. It's going to take us out. It's going to capture us uh, someday. Um, and, and it's relentless. And so the idea here is, is there's nothing more permanent in life than death. I mean, death is, death is permanent, man. It's, 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 you're, you're, you die, you're done right? It's, it's permanent. And so the idea here is, that, again, he's, he's comparing love to death, the strength of love to the strength of death, and, and saying there's, that's how permanent love should be. Well, when you get married, right, you're done. It's permanent. There's no changing it. There's no going back. Um, and just as death doesn't give up anyone, right? True love never gives up. True love never quits. And I was thinking about this this afternoon as I was writing some of this stuff out based on what I was learning and I thought of another way to make people really awkward at wedding ceremonies. If the divorce talk and breaking promises talk and you better be willing to keep these vows and if you don't we're going to become knocking on your door right I mean uh, but to talk about their funeral I mean here's the you're right you think about weddings and funerals and and everybody loves to come to a wedding that's fun nobody likes to go to a funeral man that's the depressing right depressing to go to a funeral so why would you talk about this couple's funeral on their wedding day this is supposed to be the happiest day of their life and you're talking about their funeral well I was thinking about this that that you should be thinking about your funeral on your wedding day. 
Because next to your marriage, the second most significant time you will spend in church together is when one of you is saying goodbye to the other. I got tears when I was thinking about that and I even write that out. That's profound to think about. That you come before the Lord, right, to commit your lives together, to serve Him, and then one of you comes back with the other one in a box, right, to present them back to the Lord and say, thank you for loaning that, my beloved, to me for 56 years or plus, right? I mean, how precious is that? That it, that it all starts at the altar and ends at the altar. On, on, a, on, a, on a lighter note, Tommy Nelson said this, I sometimes say to future grooms in a premarital counseling session, when you get married, you get measured for your tux and your coffin at the same time. This is well put, right? So he says, for love is as strong as death, and then jealousy, it says, is as severe as Sheol. You're like, whoa, whoa, time out. That doesn't sound biblical, jealousy. Yeah, that's that's part of the world's package of love and lust and jealousy. Well, I, I would say envy is, right? Envy is wanting something that belongs to another person, right? That, that's That's envy. Um, you're coveting what someone else has. Jealousy is wanting to keep others from taking or having what God has given to you. Right? In other words, it's a righteous, holy um, jealousy. God is jealous. It says the Bible talks about, the Bible never says God's envious, but it does say that God is what? Jealous. He's jealous. God's jealous for us. Why? Because we belong to Him. He doesn't like to share us with anyone else. And he reacts when anyone or anything tries to woo us away from him. And so that's why we as husbands and wives, right, true love is jealous. Not in a jealous, we talk about the jealous rage, you know, some act of passion where you go kill somebody that's coming on to your spouse. Obviously, that's a sinful uh, act. But there should be a healthy jealousy where you're going to fight, right, for your marriage. Like, like I, I like that, uh, I think this is illustrated well in the, in the fireproof movie, right? When, when, when the husband ends up in the hospital after getting burned and the doctor, the, 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 the weasel doctor who's trying to take, take his wife, right, comes in and cares for him and he shows up in his office uh, and he talks about, you know, how he's like, he makes a fist with his wedding ring <laughs> and he's like, hey, listen, I'm married and I love my wife. You leave her alone, Right? And, and I thought that's a good example of godly jealousy, right? Uh, defending um, our spouse from anyone or anything that would take them away from the relate, kind of relationship God wants us to have. And again, it's very godlike. Um, so love is jealous, it says. Jealousy is a sphere of Sheol. Uh, notice it says its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. So again, uh, we, we talked about, hey, where's God in this book? Because he's never mentioned, haven't heard of him yet. Well, some commentators say this is it right here. Uh, there's different ways you can translate that phrase. It's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Um, I appreciate uh, the way the NASB, the NIV, and others translate this, that they, they give really credit to the Lord for this, 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 this fuel. Who's ultimately the fuel 
behind all the passion we see in this book. The Spirit of God, right? God uh, is behind all this stuff. And, and, and so this is, there, there's something about, I, I said this is not a, a, a humanly possible, this kind of love is not humanly possible. If, if left to yourselves, whatever love you can muster up is not enough to last a lifetime. You need the supernatural help of, of God. And so the idea here is that love is meant to be this eternal flame um, that, that is fed by God himself. This is a special love. This is, this is fueled by God himself. And notice what it goes on. Uh, talking about this flame, this idea continues. Many waters cannot quench love. There's this flame, right? Many waters can't quench it. Nor will rivers overflow it. If a man, well, we'll stop there. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. Again, the idea is this, this flame, which is ultimately produced by God himself in, in a husband and wife, um, it, it's unquenchable. It's, it, it's inextinguishable. No matter what floods come, you can't put out this fire. No matter how many trials or how much tragedy or, or trauma or, or trouble that you face in marriage, your marriage, this, this love, true love perseveres through it all, no matter how painful, how stressful. You can't put it out. No matter who's throwing stuff on it, Right? whether it's Satan or some other sinner outside of your marriage, even your own sin, right? It can't extinguish this fire. One commentator said this, it's inevitable that love will always be tested and tried, will always encounter forces that threaten to undermine and destroy it, but the love which is fueled by the energy of God will triumph and overcome all these adversities and will emerge purer and stronger and more precious through the testing. And I think the problem in our society is, is people aren't committed to working out their differences. They're not willing to do what it takes to, to, to make a marriage last a lifetime. They, they want instant gratification without any effort, um, without any patience, without any difficulty. They want a problem-free marriage, right? There is no such thing as a problem-free marriage. And so... There's endurance here. True love endures. It endures. And then lastly, it says, if a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. In other words, you can't, you can't buy love. At least that's what the Beatles said, right? Money can't buy me love. Is there a song that talks about that? But if you try to buy love, I mean, this is, you can't put a price on this. That's the point. You can't put a price on true love. And it, why? Because it's a priceless gift from who? From God. It's something that God grants a, a man and a woman. Uh, so you can't put a price tag on it. It's not for sale. Sex can be bought, but love cannot. It's a gift that must be given, and if you try to buy love, you'll be scorned, you'll be rejected. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, at the end of that description, uh, it, it's, it's right in line with what the Old Testament says. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
Love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, love does not brag, it's not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and what? Endures all things, love never, what? Fails. Love never fails. And so again, what we're seeing here in, in, in the Song of Solomon is that this couple is just affirming their unending love, their unfailing love for each other. And ultimately, God is portrayed as the source of that love. They can't take any credit for that love. Oh, we love each other so much. As if, it's, as if they're, oh, really? Wow, you guys are really cool. No, that's an evidence of God's grace in your life. Well, let's go on quickly here. Uh, verses 8 through 12 are, I think, best understood as a flashback. Uh, she's thinking back um, to uh, before she ever met Solomon, um, before she was ever married to Solomon. Verses 8 and 9, we have a little sister and she has no breast. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she's spoken for? If she's a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. Now, here's the brothers making their final appearance, right? We, we were introduced to them back in chapter 1, verse 6. Um, it talks about my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Well, apparently these guys were not all bad, okay? They had their, their, their little sister's best interests in mind, right? And she's recalling how protective they were of her and that they were faithful to their brotherly duty to guard her and to protect her primarily, what? Her purity, right? And help her stay a virgin until she was married. And we see some examples uh, in the Old Testament of brothers sticking up for their sisters, right? Rebecca's brothers, uh, Dinah's brothers, Tamar's brothers. Now, the way they stuck up for their sisters wasn't always noble, right? They would end up killing people who violated their sister. But the point was, um, I think that's every brother, right, needs to be taking care of a sister, watching out for a sister and, and have her purity in mind and wanting to protect her from any guys uh, who, who might want to take that from her. Um, notice it says, if she's a wall, we'll build on her a battlement, of silver, but if she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. The wall uh, is obviously a picture of integrity, right? That hey, she, if, if our sister is 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 um, a, a woman of integrity who 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 won't let anyone touch her, right? Then we're going to exalt her and give her more freedom, right? But if she's a door, which is a reference, I think, to sexual promiscuity, right? Swinging on a hinge, opening easily to any man who might come along, we're going to have to protect her. We're going to have to lock her away, right, for her own good is what, is what they're saying. Because um, she's not wise enough to protect herself, so we need to do it for her. Verse 10, she speaks up. She says, I was a wall, right? If there was any question whether she was a wall or a door, she said, oh, I was a wall, and my breast like towers, then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. So here she's talking about when she was fully developed she had matured physically and, and emotionally and, and, and uh, you know uh, spiritually and so she was at a point where she was ready to mar be married and she said guess what I was a wall I, I, I was a virgin I kept myself pure by the grace of God 
I didn't let anybody touch me. I didn't give myself away to anybody else. And, and, and again, she's, she's saying this with pride. Again, not in, um, in, a, in a sinful way, but I say that because, you know, today in this generation that we live in, especially for you young people, to admit that you're a virgin, right, you get laughed at. It's something you kind of don't want anybody to know, right? But it's almost like she's shouting it from the mountaintop. She's, it's in Scripture, okay, for all the world to read. She wasn't ashamed of that. She was proud of that. And, and, and so you shouldn't be ashamed of that. Um, you should be proud of that. And why? Ultimately, because that proves, that proves that you are ready for the commitment that's involved in marriage, right? If you've not kept yourself pure, you're not ready. You're not ready. Um, why? The foundation for, for, for faithful commitment, right? How do you know when a single person is ready for marriage? Is, is, is when they've um, demonstrated a pattern of purity. Um, listen, if a couple is committing sexual immorality, their re- relationship is built on a shaky foundation. And, and, and I've, I've, I've been honest with couples. I'm like, listen, if, if you guys were sleeping together before you got married, what kind of confidence do you have that that's not going to happen after you're married with other people? If you couldn't have self-control with each other, what would give you the confidence that, that he's not going to do that with some other girl or she's not going to do that with some other guy, right? I mean, you pretty much destroy each other's trust with each other. It's ironic. Um, but if you keep yourself pure and you're able to exercise self-control with one another and you hold each other accountable and you pray and you, you get accountability and, and you make wise decisions and you, and you demonstrate that by God's grace you know how to possess your vessel in, in holiness and honor, um, then guess what? You have every confidence, right, that, that you can trust your spouse. You, you don't have to go around wondering where they are, doubting, uh, any, have any questions about your mind. You don't have to go play detective, right? Wondering if they're being faithful to you. Um, I'm just going to say, listen, avoid, avoid a person who's been sexually promiscuous before marriage. What makes you think they're going to change, right, after they're married? Now, obviously, by the grace of God, they can, amen? And, and, and I know some of you know that. You've experienced the grace of God in your lives. That, that God has granted you repentance and God has made you new creatures in Christ and you don't live in fear and anxiety anymore um, always wondering what's going on but notice what she says here I was a wall and my breasts were like towers then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace so what is um, what is she talking about We're talking about that there's peace, there's there's rest, there's there's confidence. This is the word shalom, which, by the way, was a part of Solomon's name, part of the Shulamite's name was from the word shalom, peace. And and somebody said this: purity equals peace. Purity equals peace. Impurity equals pain and havoc. And so she was rejoicing here in her in, in in the joyous consequences of having lived a a chaste life up until the point that she was married she was so glad that she came to that sacred moment right as a virgin and I think again she's thinking about the younger gals here and she wants them to to know the same joy and peace that she now experiences 
We talked about how Proverbs is the book for boys, right? My son, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son, 23 times. And the Song of Songs is a kind of a book for girls. Talking, talking about the daughters of Jerusalem a whole lot here. Uh, it's kind of a, a female emphasis in the book, if you will. And so I would encourage moms in here to maybe use the Song of Songs as a way to train your daughter at the appropriate time, right? About um, all those important things she needs to know as a woman. Um, use the Song of Solomon. And so through the combination of her family, her peers, her community, her church, just her own self-resolve by God's grace, the knowledge that she had, God protected her and kept her pure for her wedding day. And when you do that, when you do it God's way, you experience God's blessing, God's blessing. And so now his husband, her husband, Solomon, could trust her. He trusted her implicitly. He didn't have a moment's concern about the possibility that she might be unfaithful to him. Because all she's ever been was faithful. And so again, don't, don't ever settle when it comes to choosing your spouse, young people. It's easy to do that, right? It's easy just to settle when it, you know, you think, man, if I don't marry this person, I might never get married. I gotta take, <laughs> I gotta take the opportunity while it's here, right? And you think that way when you're young. Listen, it is better to be single wishing you were married than to be married and wishing you were single. Don't forget that. Well, let's see how this wraps up. Verses um, 11 and 12. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamam. He trusted the vineyard to the caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. My very own vineyard is at my disposal. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and 200 are for those who take care of its fruit. Now, commentators kind of pull their hair out going, what in the world is going on here? Um, I think a simple way to understand it is that he's referring to this vineyard, right? Solomon's vineyard that he leased to her brothers, Here's King Solomon that owned a lot of property, and, and so he leased it to her brothers. This is where she had met Solomon. These were the, they were working the vineyards. They were making money. They were giving him money. And then now she's contrasting his vineyard uh, with her vineyard, which was herself. And she's basically saying, listen, I, uh, my vineyard is at your disposal. I mean, it's at, it's at my disposal. I can do whatever I want with it. My life, my body, I don't owe you anything. But she says, I voluntarily give you all that I am, um, and, and, and I'm not for hire. I'm giving myself to you as a gift. I'm giving myself to you as a gift. And then Solomon, this is the only time he shows up, he comes out to take his bow. Oh, you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. Some say that it's possible that she was sitting amongst a group of guys, some of his friends, and um, they were so intrigued by her and enamored with her, uh, the beauty that she was, um, that he, he, he calls out to her, not in a jealous way uh, or a frustrated way. He just says, hey, I, I, I want to hear your voice. Hey, come, I want to hear your voice. Hey, come over here. And, uh, and then notice how she responds, verse 14, hurry my beloved, he and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains. Excuse me, on the mountains of spices. And again, 
in typical um, Song of Solomon fashion, right? One more invitation to intimacy here. Um, very similar to what she says in chapter 2, verse 17. Um, Turn to me, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bether. So the point is that their, their love is not lost its intensity. There's great passion here. And again, maybe a little lesson, practical lesson, the way we can interact with one another during the day as husbands and wives. You know, uh, late, late, uh, or husbands, I would think that your wife would appreciate you giving her a call during the day and saying, hey, honey. And she's like, hey, what's up? Nothing. I just wanted to hear the sound of your voice. Right? I'm seeing some ladies' big smiles right now. Like, that would be awesome. I would love to have my husband say that, that he really cared enough just to call because he missed the sound of my own voice. Want to hear that? And wives, what, what about this suggestion here? You text your husband, hurry home, honey. I've got a surprise waiting for you. That's all you got to say, right? And uh, see how often he works late, all right? I mean, he's going to get his work done in record time, and you are probably going to need to pray that he doesn't get a speeding ticket on the way home, right? If you give some kind of invitation to intimacy like that to your husband. But again, it's a playful thing, right, um, that this couple, we've seen them do uh, many times before. Question, are you a joy to live with? Do you look forward to going home? Do you look forward to, to when your husband gets home? Uh, if not, something's wrong, right? It's not the way that God intended it. If you're like dreading walking in that front door or you're dreading for that front door to open, right? That should give you pause and say, you know what? I, I think we're violating some biblical principles here and we got to get to the place where we can have these, this, this, this type of intimacy um, with one another and enjoy one another's company. I read a story years ago. I'm sure you've heard of this story, but I wanted just to read it to you because I thought it was very, it just, it just brings tears to my eyes every time I, I read it. But a doctor, a medical doctor named Richard Selzer uh, wrote a book called Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. And he describes in his book a solemn scene that he witnessed in the recovery room with a young couple after he left the wife scarred for life in the process of removing a tumor from her cheek. And this is what he said. He said, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, somewhat clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. She will be this way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening, lamp, uh, dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. The moment is a private one. Who are they? Who are they, I ask myself. He and this wry mouth I have made who gaze at each other so generously, so lovingly, the young woman speaks, Doctor, will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. I think it's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God moment. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close that I can see how he twists his own lips 
to accommodate to hers, to show her that, her, that their kiss still works. What the world calls love is superficial compared to this, I think, more accurately, the world's love could be called what? Lust, right? It's not love. It's not true love. And in a culture that has perverted God's original design for love and and sex and romance, this book, the Song of Songs, celebrates the wisdom and the value of genuine, pure, exclusive, enduring, permanent love that is shared by a man and woman united in holy matrimony. And, and, And it sets in contrast, right? It sets that in contrast to the foolishness, right? This is, what do we call this? This is wisdom literature, right? In poetic form. It contrasts the, the foolishness of pursuing the cheap alternatives or counterfeits that the world has to offer that never fully satisfy our yearnings for true love, whether it's polygamy, immorality, adultery, pornography, you fill in the blank. One commentator said this innocent eros in the book of Song of Solomon is an antidote to guilty and godless pleasures. In other words, this is wiser, this is better than any sexual counterfeit the world has to offer in the name of true love. And you're foolish if you pursue these things because you're going to miss out on the real deal. what's the bottom line ultimately the the, the love that we enjoy in marriage was ordained by God to give us a faint glimpse a very faint glimpse right of the intimate love relationship that he desires to have with us through his son Jesus Christ which is the truest love of all one last read if I could from Mahaney who summarizes this point very well he says this subject covenant love the essence of love is the only appropriate place to end a book on romance and sex how good of God not to leave us to ourselves to try to discern the nature of true love he has taught us about this subject in his word He talks about how we should cheer on couples like the Rogers, like this couple I just read about, this young couple, and not just cheer them on, but let's join them. He says, for this is indeed is covenant love, the kind of love that produces not merely the best possible sex, but a complete marital union, a union as so comprehensive, so irreversible, so unquenchable that in all things and all circumstances it points to the goodness and glory of God. No human love, whatever its duration, depth, or intensity can ever be more than a reflection of God's love for human love does not exist independent of God's love. All true love is derived from God and love finds its ultimate expression in God alone. So how exactly do we know what love is? 
1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He said, our only infallible standard for love is God himself, and the purest expression of his love is found at the cross where our Savior demonstrated his love for us in the most ultimate and final way. He died. And as he hung there, suspended between heaven and earth, he was taking my place and yours, suffering the wrath we rightly deserve for our hostility and rebellion against the perfect holiness and goodness of God to understand the irreversible nature and unquenchable power of covenant love. Ultimately, we must look to the cross. Because displayed at the cross for all to behold, we see the perfect love of Christ for his church. And it's meant to inform us and to inspire us in our love for our spouse. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book in, in, in your word that so often is avoided because it just is hard to understand and awkward maybe to apply in a public setting like this. But we know that ultimately you were just putting on display um, the love between a husband and wife, which is simply a reflection of your love for us in Christ. We know that you love us unwaveringly and unconditionally, eternally. You will always love us no matter what we do or what we don't do. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. You loved us to the point of death. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to love our spouses like you love us. Thank you for being so gracious and creative, Lord, to give us the gift of marriage, that while it, 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 it does serve ultimately as, a, as an example of, of Christ's love for us, um, there's a whole lot of enjoyment that comes along with it for us. And so we just thank you for that, and we pray, Lord, that uh, none of us would just exist with miserable marriages. We would be jealous for your glory, and uh, Lord, that we would want to see our marriages be all that you intended them to be. And we know ultimately we can't do it not in our own strength. It's something that you've got to, 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 to fuel um, with your power, your strength, by your spirit. And so I pray that you'd just in, infuse our marriages with supernatural life and fire and passion for your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.